Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. There's a whole lot more to wine from Canada than ice wine. In my opinion, nobody is doing it better than Norman Hardy. After making wines in Burgundy, New Zealand, South Africa, and California, Hardy decided the best place to make the wines he loves is in Prince Edward County and Niagara. The sites from which he sources and grows the grapes for his wines provide fruit that makes wine driven by minerality and elegance. I sat down with Norm to talk about making wine in Canada and to taste his spectacular wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Norm Hardy of Norman Hardy Winery. Great to, show. great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Norman Hardy Winery isn't... Uh, in a place that maybe people always think about when they think about wine, they think maybe more about Molson. <laughs> That's for sure. Or uh, maybe ice wine as well. But uh, yeah, Canada's had a, um, a long history of, uh, of being, I think Bob and Doug McKenzie <laughs> <laughs> over the years gave us a great beer reputation and we certainly consume a lot of beer, but uh, uh, It takes a lot of beer to make a great wine. That is for sure. It's, you know, you can either drink milk to fix the pH in your mouth, or you can drink beer. So, why don't we drink some beer? So, so how how did it, you're from Canada originally? Yep. Yep. How how did a kid from Canada get into winemaking? Um, you know, I was fairly lucky. I I fell into um, fell into uh, wine um, after university. I I wasn't ready to work. I I wanted to learn how to speak French properly, and I found a great French program at the University of Dijon. And uh, I went to the first day of class, and I realized that the course was not the one that I was looking for. Uh, but I just, in that first few weeks, I met this lovely Dutch girl, so I didn't want to leave. And I had got to sell myself a job apprenticing in the kitchen of a two Michelin star restaurant at night. So I thought, well, I got to find something to entertain me during the day. And they were offering a somebody program at the university, and I talked my way into the class. And um, and that's really where it started. And I was very lucky. I was working at this great restaurant, and the sommelier and my professor uh, were best of mates, and they put two and two together. So uh, as a 21-year-old, every night I had this little private tasting after the floors were clean and the stoves were done. a bad place to have a private tasting. Yeah, and all these op- great open bottles. I, I, I didn't drink nearly as well today as <laughs> I did then. Um, and, and that's really where it, where it started, and I fell in love with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and particularly that you know in the style of uh, sort of older world style, Burgundy, the style with lots of acid and tension in the wines. So that's where you sort of got your chops going on with wine. How'd you do the wine-making side then? Well, I uh, worked for four seasons for about seven years afterwards, and I became the lead sommelier. And I, uh, um, we uh, in Dijon, uh, no, in, in 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 Toronto, uh, joined Four okay. Seasons Hotels, and 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 I ended up being the lead sommelier and choosing all the core wines for the U.S. wine list. And that took about two two weeks a year, and and then the rest of the time I managed um, the flagship uh, fine dining restaurant in Toronto at the Four Seasons there, and. I kind of felt that there was one part missing in my sort of knowledge that while I could taste it really well and I could understand it, I could decipher it, I'd really never made any wine and I felt that um, I should really understand how wine is made and and if I'm going to be a true critic, you know, I've, I sort of had to walk in the shoes of the winemaker a little bit. So um, I took a essentially a year off and uh, 
went out to Oregon and did the vintage for Russ Rainey at Evesham Wood. Uh, one of sort of my icons, he was the first organic biodynamic pr producer and one of the first in Oregon. And, uh, and then a friend of mine was getting married in South Africa and I went down and worked in the Hillman Arta Valley for Peter Finlayson, who was the original winemaker at Hamilton Russell. And that valley was starting to get some reputation for Pinots and Shards. And um, end of the vintage, uh, Peter said to me, would you think about staying? And now I had this big decision what to do, whether I was going to go back to blow drying my hair and wearing suits and ties or staying in South Africa and, and, uh, and, and learning how to make wine. And so I, it was a, they tried to kind of sucker punch me. The, the Himalayana Valley is this beautiful valley. You know, I, it's one of the most beautiful parts in the world. And you're sitting there and looking down and there's the ocean and they offer you this job. And I, I said, I, I ducked the sucker punch and I said, you know, Peter, I, I love the offer. It's, um, I need to go home and make a decision away from here. And I flew back to Toronto and um, I barely got through customs. I made, made my decision. Uh, but I, I, the, I sort of went back on the basis that um, if I could go to Burgundy for harvest every year um, during this winter months of South Africa, I would take the job. So that's, that's uh, so they took me back on that basis. And it, um, I spent four, I did four 10 months since in South Africa and three vintages in Burgundy. And, and from there, I was really, um, I, I, I almost was there. And, you know, when you were growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, you got to make sure when you, when you open with your first vintage, wherever it is, it has to be good. And I just didn't feel comfortable. And um, that was the time I started looking Canada at the same time. Um, and then I spent two years between New Zealand and Santa Barbara. Oh, you made wine all over. Yeah, yeah. So, so with that, New Zealand and Santa Barbara were really great vintages, and I worked with great people. I worked for Jim Clendenin and Bob Lindquist uh, in Santa Barbara, uh, and then in New Zealand, I worked for this crazy guy called Dean Shaw. He makes two paddocks wines for Sam Neill and uh, a lot of other wine, a lot of other small wineries. And um, in all those travels, I was looking for great soils, and uh, and then I looked at Canada. And uh, my parents were getting nervous. Like, I was a 36-year-old with a backpack. Right, right. And, like, all my friends were getting married and, you know, having children and buying houses. And my, uh, my mother's going, yeah, well, thinking about sitting down, uh, you know. So that was sort of the, the, the journey to sort of eventually opening and finding my own place. Wow. So you decided you were going to do this in Canada, in, in Ontario. Well, you know, Canadians, are, we're a funny bunch. Like, we say sorry a lot. We apologize polite, all the time. Very polite. very polite. And we never can think it can be as good in Canada as somewhere else. So I never thought about, you know, about Canada until when I was home over uh, one of the breaks between vintage. And my, my dad passed me a glass of Chardonnay, and he said, what do you think of this? And I said, Man, this is delicious. Um, and it had everything I wanted. It had all the earmarks of great clay and limestone. And with that, I, um, uh, I said, and he said, well, it's from Niagara Peninsula. And uh, sure enough, I was looking for clay and limestone. And 
man, that Niagara Escarpment is full of limestone. Yeah, it is. And uh, so I went down and, and uh, identified the vineyard and spoke to the winemaker and looked at the vineyards. And then I went to Brock University, which is um, uh, in, in the Niagara Peninsula area, and they were very good in plant soil maps and all that sort of stuff for me. And I started looking at Niagara, and then someone said I should go to this place called Prince Edward County. And um, uh, that's you know, kind of around the other side of the lake. Yeah, yeah it's on the northeast corner of, of of Lake Ontario, whereas Niagara Peninsula is on the southwest right. corner. And I thought I had to go to Prince Edward Island to go see Anna Green Gables because no one knew where Prince Edward County was. And uh, I drove into Prince Edward County. I took one look at the soils and I went, yeah, this is magical. What did, what did, what did the soil there in Prince Edward County remind you of? It really, uh, you know, when you, when you drive in Burgundy in the cutaways of the highways and you can actually see the soil structure, that's exactly what it looks like. And uh, it's fractured limestone with clay, uh, and a, a limestone where it's really easy for the roots to penetrate and get nice and deep. And I'd looked for those soils all over the world, and, and sure enough, there they're sitting on my doorstep in a place called Prince Edward County, where no one knew it was except for this magical beach called the Sandbanks, where uh, it gets in the day of tourists in the summer, but outside, and no one really in those days talked about it because the Sandbanks, everyone wanted to keep it as a secret. So. Um, I looked at the soils and I said, you know, th th there's a catch, you know, why has this not developed? And the catch was being on the north shore of Lake Ontario, uh, meaning that when the winds from the north come down, mm. there's no body of water that doesn't freeze. So when it comes at minus 28, we get minus 28. So it's cold there in the winter? It's freezing. And minus, you know, minus 25 is where vines will die. We're only talking about centigrade. Yeah, yeah, Celsius, yeah. So minus 25 is where, where vines will die. So, you know, there's no use planting a vineyard where, you know, vines are going to die, even if the soils are the most magical soils. And the summers, being a peninsula right out into Lake Ontario, is very moderate and very cool. So in the end, and then I, in the end, I, we worked out, and there's some farmers who, some other people planted, and they were actually burying the vines of soil. And I thought, well, uh, this, if we can do this efficiently, um, uh, this could work very well, and uh, you know, people in 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 Ontario they b bury their their rose bushes sure. uh, in the winter. I'm sure here in Chicago, some people do as well. Um, we have a big Greek community in Toronto, and they many of them have fig trees, and they actually bend the fig tree over, and then they they tie it, and they f they cover all the green tissue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you go through the vineyard every year and you bury every vine. Every vine. So it, the difference between fig trees, rose bushes, and vines, you might have one fig tree, four rose bushes, but I've got 80,000 vines today. Right. So we, ha I, I, I wasn't going to do anything until I felt we could do it um, efficiently and in time. Um, because there's going to be that time between picking and bearing and would be very quick because before we get too cold and the earth gets too wet and too heavy and you can't use it to mound. So then I had this big decision. So I, I found a piece of land that I thought was amazing. And then the big decision was, do I buy it or not? And then the second, or do I find some beautiful sites in Niagara? And that's what it's going to be. But the county intrigued me so much. I thought, you know what, I gotta buy in the county. I'll establish in the county. I can always buy beautiful Niagara grapes. 
Uh, it's established. Um, there's some great sites where I can work with some great growers. And then I can plant my own vineyard and I can get some county grapes if we find out it's going to work. If I had started in Niagara, I would never have been able to get county fruit because it was such a nascent industry. Mm-hmm. So I took the plunge. I was right after 9-11 in 2001. I was working at Auburn Klima and Jim and uh, had, we had a long chat and he was really keen to pull me on full time at ABC and you know Santa Barbara pretty comfortable yeah. place yeah. <laughs> yeah. and guess what again. man I chose cold Canada <laughs> uh, and uh, put an offer on, on, on the property and, and uh, never looked back so you go to your first couple of years with your vines not producing anything. Did you make any wine those um, years? I did. So this is the beauty of working with uh, having Niagara so close is I purchased fruit from Niagara in the first couple of years. And we had some, unfortunately, uh, we had some very limiting factors, government bureaucracy. I could only buy so much and because we have a monopoly. It's, you know, we have a few rules in Canada. The government always gets in the yeah. way. And, um, uh, uh, so the first few vintages were very small. You know, uh, first I remember the first vintage was five barrels of Pinot and five barrels of Chard. Just when you were able to get your hands on. Yeah, and what the law allowed me to buy, and and so it was very very small, and 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 we've uh, the laws have changed over time, and so now I source about sixty percent of my fruit from. Oh, you still source a good bit of fruit. Yeah, I you know I kind of look at. A county in Niagara similar to Sonoma and Napa. You know, if I was in Sonoma and someone said, you know, we got some great Mount Vita fruit, would you like to buy it? Would you say no? Yeah, right. Right? And, and that's kind of like the, the way the young, hip winemakers in, in, in California are doing it now. You know, uh, uh, Michael Cruz and, sure. and uh, Morgan Twain Peterson, they get their hands on some funky, you know, Right stuff from different uh, Saint places. Saint Laurent from Calistoga, yeah. just because they're in Petaluma, they're not turning it down. Exactly. So, um, so we I work with both appellations. I like them. They are just certainly different. Um, uh, climatically, they're different. Uh, they're both clay limestone based, but the limestone in Niagara is dolomitic and it's harder limestone, uh, where the county is more calcareous and has a lot more active active calcium in it. So. Um, with that, um, the wines are completely different. Sure. Um, and uh, the other beautiful thing about working with those two appellations is that I don't have all my fruit coming in at the same time. So I kind of look at how the fruit works. It's, it's a bit like a restaurant reservation list on a Saturday night. Between 6 and 6.30, it's Niagara Pinot. And then between 6.30 and 7 is County Pinot. 7, 7.30 is Niagara Shard, and then 7.30 to 8 is the County Shard. And then there's a customer that comes at the, any time they want because they are so special. And it's not such a special grape. It's Pinot Gris, but they think they're really special. And <laughs> Pinot Gris can come anywhere in there, and it doesn't really matter. It's a small part of our production. And then we have a nice, quite long bit gap. And then around 9 o'clock, um, Riesling and Cabernet Franc start to come in. Um, so we really and have work with all those groups. Work, yeah. I I decided when we first started, like we we're gonna we we're gonna do Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and then I realized like we've got all these other great varietals that do so well in clay and limestone around us. Sure. You know cool why? In cool weather too. And cool weather. So we sort of changed our motto is that we'll do anything that grows on clay and limestone, sort of Burgundy Jura North. 
anything south of that, forget it. Right. We're not going to get it ripe. Um, so we do Cavron, but it's done in sort of Chino Bourguet style. Um, but, you know, I, I have one eighth of an acre of Syrahs of any that I bought. And uh, um, it, the Syrah I was put in as a bit of a vanity project by the guy. That, he was smart enough just to put one eighth of an acre as opposed to an acre. <laughs> and he loves Syrah. And in the end, um, it's the last thing we harvest. And we make rosé out of it. How far from uh, Niagara? Is the county? Where's your wine? Um, it's about 200 miles, 300 kilometers. And it's uh, a couple hour drive. It's a good three hour drive. It's three hours on the nose when there's no traffic. Sure. However, uh, so does it take that long to get your fruit from there? No, and and we we either pick very early in the morning. The the key is not to get stuck. Toronto is sort of about a, a third of the way from Niagara oh, to so, you so, have to cruise so you got to be very careful with um, uh, with with picking times on that plus the other thing now is we put everything in refrigerated trucks so if, if they get stuck in half hour there it's not going to make a difference um, and we've got very good um, in trucking times and picking times and and uh, and then also you know we we end up processing quite a bit late in the afternoon early evenings and so we have a big crew you know most people have their big crew in the AMs we tend to have our bigger crew in the PMs and they go from three till two in the morning or whatever. And then I bring in the skeleton crew when the Niagara stuff is in the morning. And uh, anyhow, we, we make it work one way or another and we've got pretty good at it. You know, Chardonnay is one of these grapes that has two things going for it. One, it really does express where it's from. Yeah. But it's also a grape that the winemaker can influence its style quite a bit. Tell me about the terroir of your Chardonnay, and then what you do with it to make it uniquely yours. Well, I think you know the the, the bottom line is it's clay and limestone, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, that's the foundation of I think all the the you know obviously Burgundy, uh, Champagne is on chalk and limestone, with ch chalk and clay, which is a chalk is a derivative of of, of limestone. Um, so the foundational um, uh, foundational soils are amazing. Um, I think where you really um, uh, can make a difference in the making is, um, first of all, uh, the types of yeast you use, uh, and the second part is um, the amount of solids one takes to one's ferments. You know, if you ferment Chardonnay with a really clean, driven commercial yeast, and uh, you have fermented very clean juice. You've put all the leaves through a leaves filter. Um, that Chardonnay pretty much can come from anywhere. So if you start to peel back those and you go, okay, well, we're going to use indigenous yeast that come from the field. Uh, we do what's called a pied de cuve, which is a uh, we culture a yeast every year from each field. So each field is fermented with the yeast that's grown in that field. Well, you but you culture it. We culture it, yeah. And it's very it's a fairly simple process. Um, yeast likes to grow, yeah. It does. And so what you do, you the first 40 liters that comes off the press, you put into two demijohns, two five-gallon glass jugs, and uh, it settles pretty quickly because in that in that juice is a bit of dust and stuff and natural clay from the, from driveways and and wind blowing and dust and that settles fairly clean and then you you take all the clear juice off and then 
you put it in, the, in two more demijohns and you move the duct tape so you know exactly what field it is. And, uh, and then uh, you put it in the sun and you know, three days later, it's just happy. It's happy, happy, and you got billions and billions yeah. of happy cells. So um, we do that with every press load. So uh, each press load that comes from that field, each field will get that inoculum. Now, obviously, you have a very natural um, philosophy when it comes to making your wine, when it comes to growing your grapes. Organic, biodynamic, any of that? No, um, you know I think we use a lot of the principles that the organic guys and, and biodynamic guys do. Um, however, I I'm also um, uh, you know I you're not out there dancing under the moon. No, no, by no means. But I like we try and rack on on the full moon because everything's stable. Um, I don't subscribe to picking on whether it's a fruit or a leaf day because I like to. Generally, it's going to rain on a fruit day, so fudge <laughs> that, you know? <laughs> um, uh, you know, viticulturally, um, you know, I kind of look at organics, and, and there's a lot of copper usage, and I think, you know, we, we, we spray slightly heavier. We don't use any, any herbicides at all, um, and my vineyard is a happy place. Um, there are insects everywhere. It's there's alive. swallows, the frogs. There's we use a natural cover crop, um, and I, you know, I know my soils are, are, are the happiest, or some of the happiest in the county, because everyone's tilling their soils, whether it's for other for vegetables or whatever, and. The seagulls are following our tractor because the earthworms are moving the earth. So, so um, I, you know, I have tremendous respect for people who who, who do organic and who do biodynamic. Um, what I feel works best for our fields is what we do, sure. and and with that, we sort of carry that philosophy into the winery as well. Great. Should we taste some wine? Absolutely. So um, here we've got. Uh, we're going to start with the 2013 uh, Niagara Shard, and um, this sort of pricey to this. Um, on the weekend, we had some friends over from the winery, and they brought a 2006, and uh, the wine was pristine and it was alive, and we bottled with no, almost no sulfur. So um, if you look at this, it's not super golden. Uh, there's a nice, almost, there's almost a green tinge to it. Um, the wine's yeah. almost four years old, and... Um, youthful. It's youthful. There's as no anything. brownishness to it at all. And, you know, there's no, um, you know, if we, and we've added barely any sulfur to this, so... Hmm. Not so much that... Uh, uh, citrus, but more the kind of stone fruit character, apple. A lot of nice apple, stone fruit. Um, there's a real nice sort of hardness to the wine as well um, on the mid palate there. When you say hardness, what do you mean? Well, I think there's a really good minerality. I think um, I think that's common from just about all the wines from Ontario that I've had. They, the, the minerality sings through for sure. Almost to a fault at some point, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with real delicate fruit. Yeah. Uh, wow, you got that limestone minerality in here, though, for sure. There's a real good hardness. You know, this wine is rich, but there's no fatness to it. You know, if this wine is exactly the opposite of my stomach, 
<laughs> I, yeah. I, I've got an 18 pack, a small keg, you know? Yeah. Uh, this is. Um, now there's, it's linear. Linear. It's, the acidity's nice and bright. Uh, it's very complex, makes your mouth water. Want, yeah. want more? And it's lovely. Any time on the lees? Yeah, so lees is a huge thing for me. Because um, it, it's not, it doesn't get that creaminess, that, that leesy no. creaminess. So I think, you know, the lees is a really interesting. If you work your lees too hard, then you tend to get this creaminess. So we actually stir all those primary lees during fermentation once, twice a day to try and extract as much minerality and try and create as much foundation as we can. Post-fermentation in the winter, we never stir the lees. So that's it, after fermentation, you just no. lay there. And you'll hear some Chablis producers, uh, we stir the lees once a week in the winter. Well, they do for two reasons. Is They've got nothing to do in Chablis in the winter. <laughs> it's miserable and cold. They prune in the spring. Uh, the second thing is, you know, often the wines are really austere in Chablis. And stirring in the winter um, does actually add some roundness and mouthfeel that they would naturally have. I feel once fermentation is done, my job is to really try and um, maintain that firmness and tightness. And if I stir the lees, you get that bit of a monoculture, and then you get that round. The wines could become too round. So Yeah, and it's not like it lacks for body. The mm. wine doesn't lack for body at all. I mean, yeah. It's beautiful. And, nice, nice touch. And this is one of the wines that, you know, this is what I call a high alcohol wine from Norman Hardy. This is 12.7. Well, and that's, God bless you. I, I've made one Enough over... Enough of this 14%. I, I, I've made one over 13 uh, in my life. It was a very hot vintage, and we made 13.1. But generally, my Chardonnays sit between 12.7 and 11.2. Is that just where they ferment dry to, or is that an intentional move you're making to keep them low? And if so, why? I, well, I think it's the, if you, number of things is very good viticulture, balanced, uh, very balanced crops. Uh, secondly, being cooler climate, um, we tend to get flavor ripeness ahead of sugar ripeness, so we can pick earlier. Um, and then lastly, using uh, natural indigenous yeasts, they, they can be a bit lazy, and, sure. and their conversion rate is, is not the same as, uh, as, as, as commercial yeast. But it, it's not like there's any residual sugar in this wine either, it's just bone dry. And yeah, there's, there's less than three grams in there. Once you're below three, I think you, yeah, you're, you're done. Okay. Like, you're dry. You're dry. <laughs> Um, now, in contrast, and it's a different vintage, but um, I brought the 14 County, and so the Niagara is off. So this is your fruit, then. This is my fruit, um, and this is primarily off um, a vineyard called Cold Creek, and Cold Creek is a, um, is a, uh, a very rocky site. Parts of it you can't even, you can't even see, uh, see the clay. Um, this is 14? This is 14. So it's not a direct comparison, but um, you'll definitely see there's a, there's a huge terroir difference. Oh, yeah, the nose is definitely more, the fruit isn't as showy. It's a little shyer. Yeah. It's a little more perfumed and, again, that, that savory, mineral-driven. Yeah, a little shy. Mm. Lovely weight, great balance. Um, a little bit of that citrus coming through. Yep. 
Um, no but not, not terribly so. It's not like screaming, screaming lime juice or anything. Yeah, no. Um, there's some, uh, there's some nice apple. It's, it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you saw the soils, and when you drink those really, very tight style Chablis, there's a, you know, th- this is what I, I think these soils can do. And we get, I find this wine super, not a steer, but it's very firm. Uh, what about wood? Um, so we spend a lot of money on our oak program for our wines not to taste like oak. <laughs> and uh, it's so we've moved more and more over the last um, we're, over the last 10 years to using 500 liter barrels as opposed to 225. And the idea with that is your wood to juice ratio drops um, versus the 225. And um, we use very light toasts and I use them specifically um, from this amazing cooper in the south of Burgundy called uh, Tonelli de Mercury. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't like to talk about the wood program because they feel as though it maybe changes the wine. I look at a great oak program a bit like a, a frame on a painting. Uh, a, a great painting with no frame is wonderful. If you put a terrible frame on, which, you know, if you use terrible oak, you know, everyone goes, oh, I taste the oak, or look at the, look at the frame. If you use a beautiful frame, no one talks about the frame. Right. They talk about the painting because what the oak has done is done its job in focusing and elevating the natural terroir. Mm-hmm. So we work very hard on our program. Uh, no one can say our wines are oaky. By no means are no. any of your wines oaky. You won't believe it. This is 35% new oak, but very light toast. Um, we use this toast called CLL, which is... Um, Just the slightest bit of spiciness if you really look for it, maybe. Yeah, not, not, not really. Again, great mouth-watering acidity, long, complex finish. This is delicious wine. This, this wine screams for food, doesn't it? Yeah, and this one... This one rocks in at 11.4. Okay. Yeah. So you could have a, two people have a bottle of this over dinner and not have to worry about tomorrow morning. Yeah, and, and low sulfites as well also it make shops, a big right. difference. Yeah, so that helps as well. It's absolutely delicious. So unfortunately, I would have brought a 15-county uh, Pinot Noir. Uh, however, being on the north shore of Lake Ontario, being on the edge... 15, we had a very similar circumstances as Chablis and uh, northern parts of Burgundy where we got a, we got a black a frost. Oh, you got black a frost. frost. Wow. And uh, anyhow, that's one of the ravages we deal with. And um, uh, we never believed it would happen that late. And it came in at the last minute. And anyhow, now I have, uh, I have every helicopter pilot's name on file. And <laughs> I make sure that him and, him and his family or her and her family get a six-bottle pack of Norman Hardy uh, wine Ready at Christmas. Ready to fly real so, early. So um, uh, I've, I've got a lineup of, of, of guys that are willing to to put their birds up in the sky and come and, and help us with the protection. So um, 15 I don't, but I brought the Niagara 15, which I think is 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 really exemplary. And, and I think it, it says a lot about what we can do in Ontario. Um, wow, what a pretty color, very delicate. Yeah. And this is a 15. This is 2015, it's unfiltered as you can see. All our Chardonnay is unfiltered as well. Um, the nice thing of going through full malolactic, and particularly in the fall, in the spring malolactics, is we can work unfiltered, which, I, because it's been through mallow, um, I feel pretty pretty confident. 
it's pretty, it's delicate. There's a little bit of that kind of that funky Pinot that I like to get that I sometimes call it, for lack of a better term, Burgundian and yep. animal kind of muskiness. Really pretty, very delicate. You got that, that fresh red berries and still the, the, the that Ontario minerality comes singing right through, which is harder to do in red wines and whites often, but um, comes singing right through, really balanced, beautiful acid. Again, this wine, dying for food. Yeah, and you know, if you look at the back label, you're not gonna believe this is 11.9. 11.9%. It doesn't drink like that at all. No. I mean. Yeah, we, I've got these, it, it's crazy good, these crazy amazing soils that we have. And I'm, you know, I just, I, I, people ask me all the time, you know, where else, in the, if, if you had your druthers, where else would you make wine? And it's like, well, yeah, if you could afford Burgundy, great. You know, maybe some great... Yeah, I mean, it's getting to the point where no one can no afford, one can afford Burgundy. Or, you know, if, you know, the Jura wasn't just so in the middle of nowhere. Uh, yeah, I love I love some of those great Jura wines. Um, but, you know, the reality is is, uh, is uh, we were, I think, in some of the most beautiful parts of the world, uh, you know, sitting on this peninsula in Prince Edward County with Lake Ontario right there. And... Uh, and having these magnificent soils and, and, and our climate tempered by that big lake. You know, I, I sort of, with global warming, and Angela Gaia came and saw us last year, and and he said, um, yeah, he said, you know, well, what about the lake and global warming? I said, you know, one of the benefits that we have is that we've got Big Blue there, is Lake Ontario. And you guys here you know, in Chicago know what big lakes are about, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. And, you know, the tremendous influence the lake has. You know, if you run on the water in, 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 in yeah, August... Uh, 20 degree difference between the suburbs and the lakefront. Exactly. So, having Big Blue there really, you know, has a huge influence on us. And how yeah. far are you off the lake? Uh, from from this, I'm about a mile north off the lake. Oh, you're right there. And then to the west of me, it's only a mile and a half. So, okay. yeah, we can uh, we feel it. There's no question. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing with lakes as well, which is really important, people don't realize, is that the second you have a change in temperature, if you close to the lake, you have air movement. And from a disease standpoint and things. It takes the pressure off takes when you're in that humid off. environment. Exactly. So you know, people think of think of Canadian wine as ice fine and Molson. They really ought to get their hands on some of your wines because they're they're absolutely delicious. They definitely express the terroir of the place and they're beautifully made from great fruit. Norman Hardy, thank you so much for your time. Exactly. I really appreciate it. Well, much appreciated. It's a great pleasure and and thanks, thanks for championing our, our wonderful country and our wonderful wines. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Poor with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Poor with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Poor. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 